Hi, I'm Rajorshi Dash and you're listening to Queerness and Storytelling in India. I have with me today a person whose name created quite a bit of a stir in Indian academia in 2017 and they are of course a major political organizer and strategies in San Francisco US Raya Sarkar kickstarted the Me Too movement in India in 2017 and in 2020 ran a successful ballot measure that taxed the rich in San Francisco Raya is a dalit gender non-binary person They are the vice president of the Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club. Thank you, Raya, so much for joining us. I hope uh, you can hear me. Thank you so much, Rajarshi, for having me, and you know, congratulations on your podcast. And I'm really excited that you know you invited me. Thank you so much. And uh, yes, I can hear you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, I think the honor is mine because uh, I know you're a busy person and. Thank you so much no, for. I'm not busy at all right now. So I'm half unemployed, so it's all good. <laughs> oh, I thought I thought you said you don't need the honorarium because. No. Yeah. No. No. I have a job, but also barely, but it's all good. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, I must tell you that you are the first uh, Bengali uh, I'm interviewing for the podcast. So you I'm also Bengali viewers. Sorry. Do you have Bengali as your audience Bengali? Uh not everybody but I'm sure there will be some Bengali people who will be listening but um and of course like in Kolkata I'm from Kolkata so you know there will be some people from like within the queer community or uh, queer right. class communities who would be part of the podcast yeah. Um but no it's it's meant for like largely a non-academic audience. who can relate to different kinds of storytelling and it's an extension of my research interest but then it's not as if everybody whom i'm inviting are directly you know going to contribute to my work so right something that i want to continue to do you know rather than being an one off kind of thing sounds good you know uh, i think it's great that you know you're inviting people who and also like engaging with people in non academic circles because i don't belong to academia mm-hmm. um i mean i obviously you know attended college but it ended there essentially mm-hmm. and right now my work is uh, not academic it's in political organizing yeah and yes that's true but uh, i was thinking about the kind of reputation you got in 2017 uh, after you came out with this list which is known as losha the list of uh, sexual harassers you got so much of attention some good but some not very good uh, in fact i think you were asked to kind of take sort of to take down that list but i will not ask you to reflect on those specific moments but i wanted you to tell us what do you think is the role of evidence in uh, social justice and do you think that the list was able to address issues of social injustice especially around sexual harassment and the repercussions you know it has uh, on the bodies uh, which are exposed to that harassment firstly you know the um, i would like to start you know since you brought up evidence is that you know we have two different 
two different paradigms, right? Like first is the legal paradigm, which is a court process or some kind of formalized institutional process where the due process, so to say, comes in. And the other one is the court of uh, public opinion and uh, where the media comes in and, you know, people discuss an issue. So um, I think that, you know, in the court of public opinion, you know, when we casually talk about issues or discuss issues and debate on them, you know, there is a misunderstanding based on what evidence is good evidence and what evidence is not good evidence, right? Mm. So some people say, oh, you know, testimony of a person is not good enough to prove any kind of wrongdoing. But that's not true. In courts, testimony is a valid form of evidence, Mm -hmm. right? And especially in cases that are hard to prove, right? And and in sexual harassment and sexual misconduct, you know, everything happens in a very discreet and private manner. And oftentimes victims are unable to preserve a lot of the evidence, right? Mm -hmm. And which is why courts in India as well have taken cognizance of this, you know, they understand that it's extremely difficult to to produce the kind of evidence necessary, which is why most people don't even report their uh, their crimes, you know, because of this misinformation, like a lot of people think that their verbal testimony is not good enough. And that is the issue that kind of translates into the lack of reporting or the lack of any kind of institutional like action. Mm -hmm. And I feel that during the, uh, you know, when I came up with the list, a lot of people said that the list was not based on evidence. Mm -hmm. That is clearly untrue because, you know, what I did was I took testimonies from different people. And I also, um, besides recording their personal testimony, I also asked for, you know, additional evidence, you know, that they have that could help them in case they wanted to take institutional action. So a lot of people who added, who requested that I add a name on the list, you know, gave me their testimonies and also sent me additional like emails. They sent me uh, screenshots of, uh, you know, chats and things like that. So I think that, you know, it's there was a a lot of misinformation about how the list was created in the first place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was so inundated with the feedback that, you know, I think the process, you know, I was unable to explain it to people. But how did people start approaching you? Because from what I understand, you you were already in the US, right? When it came out and the Me Too movement in the US had just, you know, uh, sort of started uh, in a way so I'm trying to understand that you are a lawyer. So was it that that, you know, inspired people to approach you? What was it? So, you know, I have been organizing. So before I moved to the U.S. in 2017, you know, I attended college in India, mm-hmm. in uh, Haryana, New Delhi. And uh, I'm also from Calcutta. So I knew like organizers and activists there. And, you know, we have organized together multiple times over there. So I just. Um, made a public request on Facebook where I was like, listen, I think we should take some action and uh, do a list. And uh, because, you know, there's such a culture of impunity within academia in in India that I personally experienced during my time as a student. 
So I thought that, you know, this was a great time to bring that up and highlight that issue and also create like a safe space for incoming students and students who are not within the whisper networks, so to say, Mm -hmm. you know, most marginalized students are not a part of these whisper networks. You need to be, you know, have social circles and all of this to, you know, access this kind of information. Mm -hmm. You know, I just wanted to create a repository of information that could help like all students Mm -hmm. and also highlight the issue of the culture of impunity that exists. When Me Too broke in the US, you know, it did highlight like how rampant this issue was. Mm -hmm. And I knew for a fact that it was very rampant in India as well. So I was like, why not? Like, if we don't do this now, then when should we do this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is which is why, you know, I, I took the initiative to do this issue. And I think people reached out to me because not because I'm a lawyer, but mm-hmm. because I think they trusted me as a person and they trusted and they, you know, thought that it was a good idea and a good project. And I think they took a leap of faith. Uh, I could have just revealed who said what, you know, and that's a huge risk they took. By, by trusting, you know, their testimony and their evidence and all of that with me. So mm-hmm. I don't know what, I don't exactly know why people approached me, but I think it comes from a sense of like helplessness and a sense of frustration also. You know, they were like, okay, this person, I don't really know them, but I'm willing to put my faith in them because, you know, the, you know, this is the last resort kind of way. Yeah. It's a huge thing to me given the responsibility, almost like a, almost a burden also, right, to keep those information safe, because right. uh, you never know what things, you know, people try and get information through various unethical means. So it's, it's exactly. a huge responsibility. But did you also think about for maybe adjudicating in a way, uh, because I remember some of the accusations that came up around immediately after the list came out was that it was uh, shaming, it, there was no due process, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, as a matter of fact, the entire sexual harassment at the workplace law, which we have in India, yeah. uh, was a result of the case of Abhavdi Devi, if I'm not mistaken, in 19, uh, 1992. And the form that we see in academia, that was, I think, if I'm not mistaken, came into uh, being in 2013. So it's not like it's very recent. That's what I'm trying to say. And also the framework that we have in colleges uh, is kind of diluted because we have the uh, ICC. It's like a quasi judicial board that every uh, college is supposed to have. Yeah. Initially, the law was for workplaces, but then it was expanded to institutions as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, to uh, you know, educational institutions as well. And and you're exactly right that it's a new system. And unfortunately, a lot of universities have not even you know set up these boards. And a lot of workplaces don't have ICC these committees either. Mm-hmm. So it's like a clear lack of okay, the law is present, but is it being executed mm-hmm. as for the intention of it? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. And very rarely. So do you think things have changed and now? Like, do you see people going back to that list to maybe identify some names, know who are safe? Uh, because I do remember some people actually, or at least one person uh, coming out and uh, and giving, sharing information with the so-called due process. If I'm not mistaken, things happened in Ashoka 
and yes. several other uh, universities. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think uh, anything happened to the person who was accused of sexual harassment. So the due process kind of failed to, you know, bring that bring that person to justice. Yes. So in Ashoka, I think I think the ultimate result was not in favor of the victim, but there was a case in. Um, in Ambedkar University involving right. violence yeah. mm-hmm. that had uh, the, the that had a process and the survivors who came to me you know uh, took it to the institution and there was a resolution Lawrence Liang was you know the the yeah. board did yeah, I remember that. that yeah and then he was given I think a demotion and he fought the he appealed to the court you know, so so like there were there were institutional channels that you know these uh, victims took, but it's obviously a very time-consuming process, mm-hmm. and it re-traumatizes the victim, obviously. And yeah. then, no matter what the decision is, if it's in favor of the victim, you know the the perpetrators or the alleged perpetrators can obviously appeal it in court, and then you have to go through this whole process, you know, in the appeals. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the, there weren't too many cases that happened where institutional action were taken, but there were a couple and the outcomes were mixed. I mean, this kind of also reminds me about the Ramjas case where uh, after th- 10 years or so, the vice principal or the ex-vice principal was found guilty. And I think he still contested it, but I'm not sure. So by that time, he was already teaching somewhere else. And at that time, from what I remember, the law, the law that was applicable to these institutions in academia used to be gender neutral. And I don't think it still is. But at that time, he had sort of uh, sexually assaulted uh, around 10, I think, boys. So, yeah, but I don't know what is justice then, because after 10 years, it doesn't seem like justice you know what i mean Uh yeah exactly you know like what what is the outcome that these institutional uh that these institutions offer is also something to consider it's like okay they take some action and they have a decision but does it necessarily keep students safe Mm-hmm. And does it like, uh, you know, does it help the victim recover from, you know, their experiences? Like what kind of reparations do they get? It's all up in the air. Sometimes this, you know, this committee is sometimes, you know, it, it, it's useless. Yeah, it's, sometimes it's just there in the, you know, as a token yeah. And, often, and you know, oftentimes there is also conflict of interest, you know, like uh, sometimes members of the ICC committee are friends with the uh, with or are colleagues of the person who is accused. Yeah. And, and you actually you have to be a colleague because I think one of the member is from the institution. Yes. So it's quite possible that they are a colleague. And although I think feminist organizations like Pinjator have been uh, sort of fighting to... Yes have strong uh, ICCs and ju- I just wish that pe- colleges took it a little more seriously. I have one like allied question to this. Um, what amazed me about especially the first time the list came out was how so many uh, of the people were men, uh, upper caste men and men who are known to be liberal, who have a kind of a leftist ideology. And you know, when the Me Too movement sort of started 
in the US, it was very white and yeah. people did not acknowledge Tarana Burks's um, legacy there. Right. In India, when the list came out, a lot of people asked you, what if um, there are Dalit names? What if there are queer names? And then the queer names and Dalit names also came up. In, in It got added, kind of. Yeah. And I remember in a response to a letter, you also said that you were Dalit. So I'm I'm trying to understand what happens when a list like this gets messy. How do you account for structural injustices when the perpetrator may not be from a majoritarian community or maybe um, it, it's being sort of persecuted by a right-wing government in another manner? Is yeah. there a way that people should deal with it differently? Or do you think that the law needs to be like, not the law, but do you think the public perception needs to be the same, irrespective of uh, what caste you're from or what how uh, you identify with or what are your political ideologies? Right. So when I was making the list initially, you know, the names that came up, like I didn't, I didn't really know what their caste designation was. And obviously, in academia, professors are mostly they belong to the upper caste, they are mostly Savarna. Mm-hmm. So it's no surprise. And also in academia, I don't think many uh, right wing academics, you know, are <laughs> uh, I don't think India has too many of them, although now it's changing. So, you know, so obviously, you know, there was a bias that uh, was reflected in the list. You know, most of the names were upper caste and, you know, the, uh, the straight men. But uh, and that is the result of the that is the you know consequence of having such an upper caste and male dominated industry. And later on, I'm pretty sure that I added a couple of queer names and, you know, a Dalit uh professors were also added to the list and that's the thing right when you have accusations against a perpetrator from the uh, queer community or the dalit community you need to have you need to approach it with nuance it doesn't mean that you know uh you offer impunity you know because these kind of abuses and these kind of power uh you know abuse of power exists in even within intersections. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty rampant within intersections. But also, you know, so we need to take account of that. And we need to address the situation uh, accordingly. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel like to not have any nuance when you approach these issues kind of invisibilizes the victims of these people of, of the perpetrators from these in- intersections because ultimately their victims also belong to these intersections. Right. So do we do we just silence these victims for the sake of, you know, um for the sake of like protecting, you know, the perpetrator who belongs to one of these intersections, I don't think that's the right way to approach it because ultimately the most vulnerable victims are harmed when we do that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and you know, when I added names, uh, Dalit and queer names, you know, like obviously I got a lot of pushback. You know, they were like, oh, you know, why are you targeting them? And it's like, uh, what should I say? I, th- I think there should be accountability within all intersections. And I don't think that accountability within Dalit communities should be built by Savarna people. I you know, I think I think Dalit victims should and Dalit women and and uh, 
you know, gender minorities should be the ones who kind of build these institutions of accountability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's just my my take on, you know, on how to approach these issues. Mm-hmm. I actually remember a couple of other lists came out after that and it was it was getting more and more confusing um, because of the names like it was like you know everyone was there and I was wondering at times where should my uh, uh, loyalty lie like should I unfriend these people should I talk to them what should I do and at times and that actually created such a huge rupture that sometimes I can't I often sort of don't even talk to certain people you know because they had different views but in other cases I have been able to reconcile and you know have a conversation uh, at least yeah there were other lists that came up and I couldn't really identify who were behind it you know but I also don't want to completely dismiss their uh, you know any kind of allegation mm-hmm. yeah no, I'm just saying it was like, you know, it was like overwhelming because yeah. everybody around you, like you you knew this, these people. And it was yeah. in some cases, maybe, maybe, and I don't even know that, but maybe I even knew uh, the survivor or the victim. Yeah. Um, so it was, yeah, it was kind of overwhelming at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, it was really overwhelming because, you know, even I knew some of the p- people who uh, were accused. Mm-hmm. and. It was, you know, obvious. So that, that this is the classic thing, right? Oh, this person has never behaved uh, poorly with me. Mm-hmm. So how should I approach this? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so that is something that, you know, we need to work through as as we deal with sexual assault in our communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, do we isolate this person or do we create some kind of accountability structure? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How has this informed your activism in the U.S.? I know that uh, you're currently um, working with Harvey Milk uh, LGBTQ Democratic Club. But before that, like you mentioned, uh, that you were part of a ballot measure which tackled yeah. the risk a rich. But is there a connection between the kind of work that you are doing right now in the U.S. and the that list? Um, not really. The kind of uh, work that I'm doing now is mainly in political campaigns and to elect candidates and to also, um, you know, pass ballot measures. So, you know, I'm hired as somebody who organizes the campaign, who does fundraising for the campaign and, you know, and who manages the campaign. So it, it's not related to, you know, sexual assault per se. Mm-hmm. But even within, you know, political, like even in the U.S., sexual assault is very rampant. Right. And uh, and it comes up no matter what kind of work you're doing, you will have to, uh, you know, the, oftentimes you do come across uh, abusers. And so my work is not directly with, you know, uh, regarding this subject, but th- there's a culture of impunity in the U.S., just as it is in India. And within political circles, it's even harder because, you know, these people are in positions of power. Mm-hmm. So uh, and in America, too, you know, the structures and the institutions are very like unhelpful. And ultimately, a lot of it doesn't get reported. So this is a constant issue. Like, even though I'm not working in this uh, with this issue, it's something, you know, you have to constantly like uh, encounter. Yeah. And yeah. because I'm I'm a TA now, I, I get to hear a lot of stories and some of this has been gone into the system but 
things haven't really changed uh, for the students. So I can you know completely understand what you're saying about the system here in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, a part of the list there was uh, a name in the list, uh, Gopal Balakrishnan, who taught at UC Santa Cruz. He was like a tenured professor in the history of consciousness department. He's a very famous leftist mm-hmm. academic, right? But he, but the victims approached me, and you know, I I saw their I processed their testimony and added him to the list, and then they started an institutional process, and that process was hell for them. And it was extremely tough because this Title IX process, you know, it's very arbitrary and it's very, uh, you know, there's a lot of conflict of interest and a lot of disbalance of power, right? And then, but ultimately the students did win a positive case and then he was kicked out of the university, I think. Oh, that's great. Yeah, but it took a lot, you know, it took like an entire media campaign to do that. Yeah, I can completely understand. Even when it's a student, you know, forget a teacher, even it's when against a student, from what I know, from what I've heard from my students, um, you know, is that they are the ones, the victims, the survivors are the ones who are actually removed from their uh, place, allegedly for their own safety. Uh, So the person, the perpetrator just gets to stay where they are. Um, So they are the ones who have to readjust, basically, and make sure that they are safe so yeah right and a lot of you know and in 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 india what happens is that a lot of uh, students who are from minority communities who are dalit who are divasi you know who are queer they just leave you right. know they just quit their education after like going through a lot of harassment they just uh, they just disenroll and they do not pursue their education so it actually affects like upward mobility mhm they worked so hard to get enrolled and then they leave because of this kind of abuse. And yeah, I mean, we can go on and on on this, but I would I would like to hear a bit about your current interests in either in India or in the US. I know that during COVID, you did a fundraiser. So the last thing that I did was it was a fundraiser, a GoFundMe that I created. Um, it was for people who work in the in the burning ghats. It was, uh, and most of them are Dalit, obviously, or Muslim, and and so you know because they were really suffering during the COVID period because there was a huge influx of bodies, and uh, they were not being paid their wages, and you know they were working I think twenty four hours. And, uh, you know, inhaling the fumes and, and you know, they, they didn't even have access to water, which is why I raised around, I think, $35,000 and split it between different cities. I basically, what I did was I, uh, I connected with organizers who I know personally in these different mm-hmm. cities and they, I transferred the money to them and they distributed it to the, uh, to the people working at these burning huts and uh, these Kabaristans. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think it was a good project because even though it was not a lot of money, I think I think each person got around 10,000 rupees or even less, you know, because we had to split it because there were so many people. Yeah. And uh, but whatever money they got, you know, I think they could at least, uh, you know, pay for food and things because they weren't being paid their wages in a lot of cases. And, and actually, in often cases, you know, being shouted at, screamed at by uh, relatives and other people and not even getting rest, like you said. 
um, during COVID. And I don't know if such projects are sustainable because, I mean, the government obviously needs to do what, you know, what they are not doing and actually sort of pay people enough, like basic wage and beyond that, especially during the COVID. But that, unlike the US where at least, um, you know, uh, people were getting a certain amount on a monthly basis. And I think it has stopped in Iowa, but yeah. I assume certain states are still doing it. And it's definitely, it's happening in Canada still, but I don't think that India did something similar, except, you know, at the state level where they did give a ration. Yeah. So the thing is, you know, the, I don't think private philanthropy can, uh, can replace the government's role in providing a social safety net for people. Just that the, the private bodies or you know private citizens cannot take over this work. But what's happening in India is that you know the Modi government and like state governments also are slowly eroding these social safety nets that mm-hmm. people have. You know, they're cutting funding. They are uh, they are like shutting down a lot of the funding that people get. And they're shutting down these social services, which is why, you know, a lot of people like during COVID this time did not have social safety nets at all. And I don't think what I did is a can replace, you know, the government's job of mm-hmm. doing this is their job. This is not my job. Mm-hmm. And this is not the activist job to do this, you know, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, because out of like desperation, we had to do this. But ultimately, I don't think private philanthropy, or these, you know, private corporations can can take the role of the government. But that's exactly what is happening under, you know, this neoliberal government that is basically shutting down services. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even in the US, right, like, they are trying to erode these services. But thankfully, under COVID, you know, they they did, because the society would collapse otherwise. Yeah. And they are, they are almost eroding the progressive laws. Uh, and, oh, yeah. and I, I was at a protest earlier today. So yeah, everything seems to be going downhill here as well. Um, I have one last question for you. And this is a little cliched. Um, I I was wondering what does it mean for you or anybody for that matter to identify as non-binary and I identify as non-binary and this is something a question that I'm grappling with like why identify as non-binary um so I just wanted to hear from you what does it mean for you to say that I'm non-binary so growing up you know I never identified as a woman even though I was assigned female at birth Mm-hmm. And growing up, you know, my parents also did not really enforce gender norms too strictly. And that gave me the opportunity to kind of grow up, you know, in a way where I was always, you know, had like dysphoria when it came to my gender. Mm-hmm. And when I grew up, I realized, you know, I read more about these issues about gender. And then I was like, hey, wait, you know, I think I'm gender non binary because this reflects the kind of life and the kind of, you know, like psychologically that I perceive myself as. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, that's when I, I think it was in 2015 or 16, uh, when I decided that, you know, not just decided, I think, you know, it's not a decision you make. It's just something you grow up as, you know, just how you grow, you know, a, a trans person is, they don't decide to be trans, they are trans, mm-hmm. right? And that's the same with the with with gender non non binary uh, you know the the identity. 
I think uh, growing up, you know, I I never identified as any gender, and uh, it, it just like despite you know the kind of strict conditioning you go through in society in Calcutta, you know, it it, it just uh, was caused a lot of dysphoria in me, and now I'm comfortable with the way I am. Yeah, yeah, and I think ultimately that's that's what is most important is that. you know you should identify as the person that that you know psychologically and through lived experience you know represents you you uh, accurately mhm yeah it's almost like getting that name it's you knew it but then you have a name now for that exactly exactly and you also know that there are others who right. experience exactly what you do yeah i mean i'm still kind of grappling with that so and yeah i mean even though i'm kind of in my early 30s but yeah i guess age is not something that helps you understand certain things but yeah uh, no, absolutely there are a lot of people who you know come out as trans like very later in their lives when they're like in their 70s you know and mm-hmm. that's because of the rampant like uh, the rampant like cisgender you know straight like conditioning and the kind of like you know just the queer phobia that you experience in your daily life yeah that you know that people are uncomfortable or you know they they don't come out earlier and that is totally up to you and i don't think we should like i don't think there's an age to it at all true and sometimes it's also like internalized because because one one thinks okay should i be will i be desired if i do certain things exactly you know, uh, or will i because i mean the constant negotiations with monogamy marriage desire love that's also a part and parcel of uh, who people are and sometimes of course people don't desire certain things um, and right. others do desire that so yeah that also depends yeah and i think my decision to be gender non binary or at least identify it is because i live in a society that makes it easier for me to be gender non binary mm-hmm. you know there there are people who live in societies where it's extremely difficult to navigate life as uh, you know an open uh, gender non binary person you know you have to negotiate your identity with your relatives with society and a lot of people they just don't want to go through it Yeah. You know, and they so they privately, you know, they just experience dysphoria every day. Yeah, and, and that, yeah, and that is just uh, d- d- very disturbing. And yeah, uh, I'm thinking about the class caste privilege that I have, yeah. and even even then, uh, if I tell my uh, parents that okay, I'm non-binary, I don't think they have the like the vocabulary to even understand what that is. Um, and it will take a lot out of me to explain even though they know i desire you know men um it will take a lot out of me to explain what this other aspect of my uh, identity is so yeah yeah i think with uh, with with parents and uh, i think in india you know now people see in the media and there is a lot more information about being gay or lesbian but trans issues i think are not as uh, openly discussed or prevalent yeah i mean we do have you know a culture of uh, you know acceptance towards like uh, towards people who identify as hijra right mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, and a lot of litigation has been done to affirm 
their rights and you know and uh, people who identify as hijra have organized you know they are a very strong organizing force but then you know the upper caste mi- middle class people you know i don't know how how connected they are yeah. or how much they even know you yeah. know and it's uh, incredibly difficult for them to like uncondition what they understand about gender mm-hmm. and that is the you know that's their process but i think trans issues the trans people in india are very organized i mean yeah and the hijra community particularly although still there is so much more violence when you compare it with yeah you know especially when it comes to savarna gay lesbian uh, people who are now getting the attention or becoming the face of the so called queer movement when yeah. and compared to that uh, trans and hijra uh people face uh much more violence on a day to day basis despite despite the litigation absolutely organization absolutely and the litigation was just like uh, you know it was overturned and then yeah. you know it was diluted and it was basically you know i don't know how useful it was but um the act is there the act is there the rules have come out and yeah. i've read uh, the rules uh, so there are like there is a bit of a nuance to that but it there is a lot that is not there like in terms of housing and everything reservation is not there which was exactly. something that nalsa had suggested but exactly and um for trans issues i feel that you know what's happening in india right now with lgbtq issues kind of reflects what happened in the us right in i live in san francisco there is you know the the hegemonic culture is the gay and lesbian culture and it has been totally corporatized and it has been completely you know now you have like what do you call really wealthy like gay and lesbian people who determine what the culture is and what gets funding and you know and so on and so forth so trans issues even over here are underfunded you know tra- programs for trans people are underfunded and even though trans people are very organized here you know trans issues are never at the forefront at the same level as gay and lesbian issues because the gays and lesbians here have just way more resources and way, you know corporations that are supporting them and uh, it's you know the grassroots nature of our identities and of our movement and of our lived experience has been completely like astroturfed and you know taken over by these corporations like now during gay pride over here it's like funded by all these banks mm-hmm. and you know all these big corporations and tech companies you know and it's it, it's i feel like you know india is heading that way yeah i mean we we always had that fight of course uh, you know with regard to corporatization of pride parades and it's a long battle and of course th- of course there are people in the trans communities who are who lean towards the right and there are those people as well but yeah overall you're right about uh, the gay lesbian people upper caste gay lesbian people kind of dominating the the scene uh, i can see that we are uh, i i asked you for 40 minutes and we went over that so thank you so much For... Thank you so much Rajeshri for having me and I hope my answers uh, were acceptable. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not a judge. <laughs> I know. But um but you know the San Francisco still has a very strong grassroots uh, gay lesbian trans mm-hmm. 
community here, you know, um, like I'm a member of the Harvey Milk Democratic Club that has like a history of political organizing. And, uh, you know, it's completely grassroots. And, uh, and, you know, and it's a way to build political power here. And I think the same exists in India, you know, but uh, I think the main thing that matters is funding. Right. You know, and funding, not just the organizing, but also funding, you know, social programs and creating them. You know, it's like a huge up, uphill battle in India. And of course, funding on an everyday basis, because sometimes it's just your electricity bill, which is due. Right. Exactly. Uh, thank you. This was a really enriching uh, conversation and this should be out soon. I'll email you the audio after I edit it. Thank you. Thank you, Rajoshi. And thank you so much for, you know, starting this podcast. I think, you know, I hope uh, people listen to it. And I hope you also are able to monetize it. <laughs> yeah, maybe I, <laughs> yeah, I should I should really think about that. 